0: Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical-stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Today, we're joined by Dr. Alex Colville, co-founder and general partner of h One, a venture firm devoted to catalyzing contrarian founder-led companies that will increase healthy human lifespan. He earned his PhD at Stanford in the laboratory of Tom Rando, who's previously been a guest on this show, and after a short postdoc, joined Age One at the beginning of this year. Throughout his scientific career, he's been interested in the business and investing side of biotech and aging, as well as the research side. And we'll find out more about that over the course of our conversation. Alex, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Super excited. So Age One recently launched with the announcement that it's raised $35 million for its first fund. Congratulations. Thanks a ton. The team is very sleep deprived, but also very, very elated with how the week has gone. I'm really glad to hear that. So for those of our listeners who haven't heard about Age One or might have heard of a different incarnation by the same name, tell us what Age One is as of September 2023 and perhaps... Say a few words about the central investment thesis of your firm. So the
1: origins of age one, the fund really lies in my colleague, Laura Deming and her history and track record, which we could get into a little bit more later if of interest. But she, in essence, built the longevity fund back in 2011. That was the first longevity focused venture capital firm, really with the goal of putting longevity biotechnology on the map and helping to catalyze the space. And she actually ran a really cool experiment back in 2018 that was called the age one incubator accelerator that was kind of focused on how do you shift the aging space more towards a founder led biotech narrative? How do you kind of support people that maybe don't have the same level of resources that a repeat founder might have in the biotech world? There were some really cool companies that came out of that program that have fed on this show, which has been really cool to watch. As a result of that, Laura and I, about 10 months ago, got super, super inspired to double down on that thesis and really launch an entire fund, kind of the next fund in the series from the Longevity Fund, devoted to this core thesis of supporting at the very earliest stages, these contrarian, ultra ambitious founders to kind of like democratize the longevity
0: biotechnology space. And what's your role at age one? It says on the website, you're the general partner and co-founder. I think co-founder is pretty self-explanatory, but what does a general partner do? The
1: general partner is responsible for overall running the fund at the highest level, in essence, leading all facets of the fund that you could imagine, whether that is sourcing founders or hiring or managing the fund or raising money
0: for the fund, and then ultimately kind of making investment decisions for the fund. Okay, so you and Laura are both general partners, and between the two of you, you run the company. Exactly. We're both co-managing members. I want to talk more about what Age One is going to do and how it's going to do it. But first, I want to jump back a few years and pull together a couple of threads that you and I have talked about previously that explain how you, Alex, got to be where you are. So first of all, you didn't meet Laura this year. You met her a while ago. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be associated with Laura Deming? Who she was at the time and what attracted you in that direction? I was like one of these fans. I had been
1: reading about her for a very long time. Laura is no newcomer to media and gathering kind of a lot of eyeballs on what she was doing because it was so different at the time. And a part of this narrative is the fact that Laura started the Longevity Fund as a 16 year old solo female back in 2011, which I think is, you know, with the context of the time uh, and kind of the era that that was over a decade ago is just unbelievably different and I think a really special way. Before that, she went to MIT when she was 14 years old. And actually, when she founded the Longevity Fund, she was dropping out of MIT as a Teal Fellow. She was paid to drop out of undergrad as this solo 16-year-old to raise a venture capital fund in this industry that has historically been very male-dominated so it's it's a remarkable story in, in terms of how she got started at
0: Longevity Fund. So it was clear that she was a visionary, and I really appreciate you giving us a background on who Laura is and what she was doing at the time. The Longevity Fund, I think, is a story that's, you know, it's, it's such an old story at this point, a dozen years, that I haven't even considered having her on to tell it. But I think it's something that we should probably consider for a future episode and, and let her really tell that whole story arc. But let's go back to the question of how you came to associate with her and maybe give us a little bit more context about what you were doing at that time before you got in touch.
1: Yeah. So in essence, I had read all about Laura online, was this kind of a super fan and was at the time uh, that I started reading about her story was an undergraduate working in David Sinclair's lab at Harvard. I did my undergraduate at Northeastern University in Boston. My apartment just happened to be right across the street from his lab. And because of his work and many other pioneers in the aging space, just totally caught fire about the potential of the aging field. And kind of simultaneous to that had been, as mentioned, reading about Laura. And so when I had the opportunity to move out to California in 2016 to start a PhD at Stanford studying the biology of aging, Laura was absolutely top of my list to reach out to. (laughs) You know, this just... This figure that had been built up to me so much over the years in terms of all the kind of groundbreaking activity that she was causing and kind of waves that she was causing in Silicon Valley by thinking so differently, it was just such an obvious, she is the person I need to meet. And so I cold reached out to her by email many, many times, I think over five times and never heard back, but was really lucky that an alumni of my program, the genetics PhD program uh, at Stanford was... A friend of hers. And in essence, he heard me talk about the aging field and immediately without even asking, just pulled out his phone and introduced me to her on the spot, uh, which was very, very fortunate for me. So because of that was able to meet Laura two days later, and then was able to start getting involved with the community events that she was hosting at
0: longevity fund. I just want to take a quick aside and point out to our listeners who will already know this, that on this show, we've had several guests whose mission is community building and the cultivation of talent within the broad field of gyroscience and longevity biotech, especially here in the Bay Area, but also increasingly around the nation and around the world. And I just want to emphasize that here's an example of these efforts doing exactly what it says on the tin. You have a young scientist who had the deep sense, that's you, Alex, who had the deep sense that there was a great promise in the aging field, not just within academia, but in biotech and reached out to someone they perceived as a visionary through community building exercises, became involved in the community and in the field. And fast forward, what is it? Six or seven years from that point. And today you're the founder of a new fund in that field with that visionary who you sought out. I mean, one's almost forced to conclude that this community building stuff really works. Yeah, I think this was one of the biggest surprises
1: to overly logical young Alex, because I'll disagree with you immediately. No longer young, but young Alex definitely was overly logical, was very (laughs) focused on, in essence, like science and just thinking very like, okay, everything is about like science and this community stuff just feels, you know, it just felt like fuzzy. People spend so much time thinking about it and it's just like, But no, we just need to like move the actual technical progress of the field along and like that's what matters, right? And I've come to flip pretty dramatically on that in terms of having a huge appreciation for the importance of community building and really like relationship building, putting people in the right scenarios to make magical connections that can lead to really dramatic outcomes. And I think a part of what really like drove this home with me was seeing Over the course of my PhD, getting to, in essence, hang out in the longevity fund ecosystem with Laura, getting to kind of witness the early events that she would host. She would host these Sunday night dinners. With all the different founders from the H one accelerator program, and they would, in essence, like take turns. Somebody would cook this homemade dinner, and late on a Sunday night, everyone would be hanging out, just talking about what excited them the most that week, or what their biggest headaches were as a founder, asking for advice, like how do you hire an executive for you know a position where you don't have a background in, and just the importance of this, just like close knit. Bonded community, I think, really took the trajectory of the founders to a whole nother level. I also got to see that in terms of just founders meeting each other, going to some of these community events. I literally got to witness some of our portfolio company founders meet each other for the first time and, and really like develop a bond and a relationship over an idea. It's so eye opening to see what can come out of that and. Yeah, young Alex had no appreciation for that, but old
0: Alex certainly does. I mean, Alex, I'm still young, so I think at best you're middle-aged Alex. <laughs> I can live with that. But the idea of, of founders meeting, I mean, you mentioned, I think, Francesco and Martin from Gordian met at one of these events, yeah?
1: Yeah, they they didn't meet as much as as it was really, like, developing like a bond over a potential thesis together for those two. Laura and Martin co-hosted a kind of journal club on Sundays devoted to aging biology that I was very lucky to get to attend a couple of them. Over the course of those journal clubs they really like honed in and realized the the bonds that they had in terms of the potential visions that they could share for the aging field. That was just such a big impact to me to be like wow, okay, these community events are actually where founders can form a vision together where you can really test out a founder relationship and have super dramatic outcomes. Or in the case of of Laura and I, you can find a super mentor that gives you a, a crazy
0: opportunity that you would have never experienced otherwise. This is fantastic. And the more you tell the stories about this, the more I realize that the culture of collegiality between founders in the Bay Area may well have its origins in these exercises that you're describing from seven and 10 years ago just the idea that like, before anything else, before we're competitors for money or attention or or what have you, we are colleagues with a common vision and we are sharing our experiences with each other. And you've just really driven the point home that that's a really special feature of our local community. And I think it's one of the things that makes the Bay Area such a special place to found a longevity biotech company. But I want to get back to the main thrust of the conversation. And just quickly, you were a scientist at the time you reached out to Laura, but I just want to say just as an aside to our listeners, like Alex is still a scientist. He just had a paper come out in Cell Metabolism about therapies targeting senescent cells. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. You should all check it out. It's a pretty cool paper. But even though you were a working scientist and you're a graduate student at Stanford University, you were already interested in the business and investing side of biotech. You've done a little, well, tell us about it. Like, Tell us about that side of your life prior to the interaction with Laura. I think it really went
1: back to probably those initial stages in David Sinclair's lab where I was just like really a buzz with the fact that there was this gap in the ecosystem of founders really driving forward biotech companies focused on aging. And I wanted to be that founder. I was very much so like, this is what I'm like. I just need to go get the skill set to go and make a big impact in the aging field. But what was really funny is that my mindset was so locked into this like set perception of how the biotech world works and how you must go about building a biotech company where in my head i really had this vision of okay i'm super young biotech is a very nuanced field i need to go get a ton of experience and i was like here's what i'm going to do i'm going to like go and try to work at third rock ventures or one of these like traditional builder companies in the biotech venture ecosystem I'm going to go like learn the ropes, work for like 10 or 15 years, just kind of like climbing the ladder, like <laughs> learning more about the ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually at the end of that could potentially go and and think about being a founder and, and finally like accomplish this end vision of being a founder of a longevity biotech company to, to really push forward the aging space. When you're old Alex. When I'm old Alex, that's what I'll be doing. <laughs> it really took Laura and uh, one of Laura's portfolio company founders Lee Lua, to really like pound that out of my brain, like, in essence, changed my mind about like what you could do if you set your mind on it, and, and kind of getting out of this like climb the ladder mentality and more into a like high-agency position of like, just go do the things you want to do directly. So as a part of this still like climb the ladder mentality, I did get to work with the business development group at Maze Therapeutics, which is a third rock ventures company and helped in essence, consult on a bunch of the projects that they were working on via like fundraising and in licensing and and competitive intelligence. And that was really transformative to me in terms of just learning about how some of the best in the field do things in the biotech space. But ultimately kind of Celine and, and Laura nagging me, it got to me in, in terms of really opening my mind to new possibilities. And so was very lucky in that I got to start consulting for a couple of family offices during my PhD in terms of giving them advice on how to invest in the aging field. And this kind of transitioned to a whole nother level at the end of my PhD when I, in essence, was the investment manager for an ultra-high net worth and managed both philanthropy and investing out of this family office into the aging field. And That to me was like kind of the full arc of realizing like, wow, this is like a whole other way that I never would have imagined I could impact the aging field and the ecosystem. But thanks to Laura's mentorship, was able to kind of realize that these other possibilities exist out there
0: to accelerate progress in the field. And to summarize, you had not no experience, you had some experience in investment, in management consulting, in various aspects of the business side of this business. But what you didn't need was gray hair. You didn't need to put in your time. You just learned what you needed to learn and observed that there were other people who were quite young and didn't have maybe the conventional qualifications that a uh, dyed-in-the-wool old conservative venture firm might consider essential. And you were ready to get started. So that transitions us very nicely on the second half of the interview where we talk about what age one is actually doing. So age one is a fund whose mission is to catalyze change in the longevity biotech field by supporting a certain kind of moonshot founder-led biotech company. Is that roughly accurate? That is absolutely roughly accurate.
1: We're at a really big inflection point in terms of what's possible. And
0: (laughs) you nailed it in terms of our vision to try to make that a reality. I want to go through what I just said and define some terms, because I think that there are words that get kicked around a lot, particularly in the Bay Area, that people kind of think they understand. I know that I benefit from a little bit of background sometimes. So Alex, what's a fund? A
1: fund, in essence, is a vehicle of money devoted to making investments to ultimately return capital with a higher amount of money
0: than you put it at the start. So how do you go about raising that money?
1: Yeah, this is like kind of like a,
0: a dark art in a sense. It's, it's uh... a... <laughs> do not meddle in the affairs of venture firms for they are subtle and quick to anger
1: yeah it's 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 really one of these like very like opaque processes i will say it's like there is no science to it you'll see a billion different paths to raising capital for a fund but in the case of, of venture capital funds there's in essence like a couple of different pools of capital that are traditionally used to fund these vehicles one of which are more like institutional investors. And in that bucket, there's a bunch of sub buckets where you could think of like endowments. So like universities, Uh, you can think of nonprofits. So things like HHMI, for example, which is a, a big funder in the academic science world, they are able to fund these grants to science because they have this huge endowment that's making them money, which then they can take that money and put it back to fund basic research, but to make that money, in essence, they need to invest it somewhere. These are kind of like a couple of examples of these like institutional sources of capital. A couple others in there are like pension funds. And another kind of bucket of capital is individuals. So ultra high net worths and family offices This is at a kind of a high level Are two of the biggest buckets of capital. There's also fund of funds, which are funds that are solely in existence to invest in many other smaller funds. In essence, it's kind of interesting in that for each of these pools, it's a totally different ballgame in terms of the strategy that you take or how
0: you actually pull that process off. In terms of these different kinds of limited partners, do you tend to specialize in or focus on one kind, or is there some advantage in diversity of your investor or LP pool?
1: I'll mention quick, limited partner are is in essence the term for an investor into a fund. As Chris alluded to, we, we call them LPs colloquially. But so yeah, in essence, the, the strategy is quite different in that they just have like slightly different goals and strategies at the different funds. With institutional LPs, it's a much more conservative, slow-moving pool of capital. They usually like to know you for at least a year to two years, three years before engaging in a relationship with you. They also care a lot about very long-term relationships and capital deployment, Over the course, they're really like their end game is to invest in VC funds that they think are going to become more and more, in essence, exclusive with time where allocations are going to be harder and harder to get. Those are kind of their ideal partners for the future where they want to lock in these allocations and VC funds that actually meet this like top decile category of driving real returns from the venture space. If you look at the venture space as a whole, most funds are not actually generating a lot of returns. Uh, It's very much so one of these ecosystems where a small amount of funds are are generating a large amount uh, of returns that the the ecosystem experiences. On the other hand, uh, from these institutions, which as mentioned are more conservative, like these very long-term relationships, there are these individual investors, these ultra high net worths, the family office worlds, and they are like snowflakes in that every single one is totally different, but at a really high level, they're just an interesting bucket in that some can move a lot faster. They're a lot more flexible because they're kind of like the snowflake. (laughs) <laughs> not the other type of snowflake quite the contrary in fact i would imagine <laughs> quite quite the contrary indeed they, they in essence they're just so different that some can move really fast they have totally different preferences of like what they're trying to achieve some are mission oriented some are just interested in the spaces and in essence it's just like <laughs> family office to family office it's a completely different experience but at all it, i think at the the high level like what connects them It's very much about like
0: establishing a relationship and establishing trust. Thank you so much for that insight. I I feel like that's, there's a lot to unpack there that I I really didn't know, but I want to move on and get closer to what you're doing today. So once you raise the money, however it is that you raise it and from whomever you raise it, what do you then do with it? Once you have the money,
1: then it all becomes in essence, the challenge of Who do you invest the money into to unlock, in essence, the biggest returns for your VC fund? And so you're making investments. You are giving this money to founders and the companies that they start in exchange for equity or ownership in these companies. And so the biggest core focus of your VC fund becomes how do we find the best founders in the world for our thesis and then two, how do we best support them to increase the likelihood and odds of their ultimate success, both financially and and from a scientific perspective?
0: How do you meet the founders? Like, there's not a list online of every founder. How is it that they come to your attention? Do they call you? Do you call them? It's actually a good idea. Maybe we just need a, a Google Doc that we post online of... Uh, <laughs> The biggest list of founders I can't imagine anyone would abuse that. <laughs> yeah,
1: what could go wrong? It's <laughs> a good question of of how do you meet founders? I think it varies like really dramatically by fund for us, one of our biggest sources of founders is is simply cold reach outs. Laura has been because she was a pioneer in the space and really putting the longevity biotech field on the map. Her inbox is like a treasure trove of just extremely interesting and talented individuals or, or mission motivated individuals to the aging space. So honestly, like cold email is one of our biggest sources of founders. And another biggest source of founders is through existing portfolio companies. I think one of the, the first things that a new founder will do as they decide that they want to build in a space is go and, and learn from, in essence, the most successful founders that they can find in that space. To learn some tips and tools, and gain really a mentor to help them. So those founders are, are a great source of of introductions to us to up and coming founders. And then the other way, coming full circle here, is really uh is really community building. I think we pride ourselves on hosting really cool events in in both San Francisco and Boston and beyond. And I think at these events we get to meet some absolutely exceptional individuals. And I, I think the cool part to wrap on up on this note is that some of the best founders don't necessarily like they don't necessarily even realize that they could be a founder so it kind of goes back to the analog of myself with Celine and laura where oh gosh this is going to make it sound like i'm calling myself a best founder absolutely not no no bad founder bad founder uh but <laughs> i think like the know i just horrified myself i i think that uh the, the thing to note there with my case example was I was a person that was ultra mission motivated to the field like what drives me is making an impact to healthy lifespan in humans that is like my north star that's all I focus on but at the time I was really kind of trapped in this narrative of if I wanted to be a founder I needed to go work in the industry for 15 years And I think that's one of the cool part is that like a lot of the best potential founders don't even realize it could be them and that they could actually go and do this and and start something immediately. And I think that's one of the cool parts of these community events is that we can help show people that to be
0: an amazing founder, you can sometimes just dive in. We've established that there are different ways to meet amazing founders. Now I want to talk about what that person looks like to you. What's your definition of a great founder? And, and, and here I mean, not just like, oh, they work on Sundays or some generic reason why they might be energetic at company building, but what makes someone a great age one portfolio founder and how do you identify those individuals? One of the key things is we want somebody on the founding team to have
1: a really strong mission motivation towards aging. I think this is something that's really big for us. Because we, in essence, want companies that are designed with the aging focus of the company ends up being a huge core strength or superpower of the company. And so in order to do that, having somebody who has a very strong mission motivation is, is very important to us. We don't want to invest in companies that end up pivoting out of the aging field for not the right reasons. And then, you know, we'd be in a situation that we'd need to communicate to our investors why <laughs> we have a portfolio consisting of non-agent companies. So that's first and foremost, it's just this like mission alignment from somebody on the founding team, doesn't need to be the full founding team. Beyond that, I think there's really this like, there's a bunch of more intangibles around just like level of ambition and then matching that with a very high amount of rigor and pragmatism. I think that is what like sends us through the roof in terms of getting really excited about somebody's potential is somebody who is like ultra ambitious about what's possible on like a 10, 20, 30 year timeline for their niche that they want to build in. And then also has this roadmap of like, here's exactly, you know, like how you could pull this off over the course of like each month, how you could de-risk getting to this like crazy moonshot vision for the field. That combination of, pragmatism and moonshot mentality really just yeah we we love people like that
0: say a little bit more about what makes something a moonshot <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i wouldn't be a vc i guess if i uh, didn't use the term moonshot <laughs> what it means to me is really like something where i can confidently say like we're going to invest in this company and if everything goes right this is going to make a dramatic impact on human lifespan and, and kind of healthy lifespan. And it doesn't, like the time interval isn't as important to me. Like if it takes like 20 or 30 years for that company to make that dramatic impact on healthy lifespan and humans, that's fine. But for me, it's really just this like ability to make a dramatic effect on healthy lifespan, which right now <laughs> is a moonshot in that, you know, we have zero FDA approved interventions for aging on the label or even that were you know aging interventions developed to target aging that are now an FDA approved drug there's some FDA approved drugs that we think might affect aging in humans but nothing that's like gone that whole progress yet that to me is is just like what the moonshot definition comes down to is like something that's contrarian that really has the promise to shake
0: things up and change the way that humans age taking a slightly different perspective which is more important to age one in its considerations about investment the founder or the idea no doubt the founder <laughs>
1: yeah 10 out of 10 times the founder there are definitely ideas that we fall in love with and ideas that we want to exist in the space but an idea is cheap what really matters to us is a founder their potential and the fact that like you know they're building something that is their baby And they're going to do what it takes to make it succeed. An idea without that founder does not excite us nearly as much. And, you know, sometimes like you'll need to pivot. It kind of goes back to this notion of the best founders have these really grand, big visions, and they're flexible in terms of how to get there and pull off this vision. Right. A cool example that I am very lucky to have followed closely is...
0: Kristen Fortney. I don't know if you're familiar with her story. I believe I've heard the name somewhere, Alex. Maybe you could remind us. Just kidding. She's my boss. She's the CEO and co-founder of BioH, the sponsor of this podcast.
1: (laughs) So Kristen is kind of a perfect example of one of these founders that just will run through walls in order to make this really long-term moonshot vision for a space exist. And so like when I think of like what founders we want to attract at age one, like Kristen Fortney fully embodies this in that she has this mission motivation to the aging field and wants to do insanely ambitious things for the space, but is really pragmatic and rigorous in terms of a stepwise approach to get there and actually pull that off. And Kristen's just this great example of a very resilient founder that you know, is able to be a little bit more loose on the exact path to get there and more flexible and is just totally steadfast on the larger mission and vision of the company. So, oh my gosh, Kristen, <laughs> Kristen is a great example for any listeners who are are looking for good uh, idols in the space to to look into.
0: I'm sure she would be very honored to hear those kind words, Alex. And I guess I just want to summarize what you're saying. You want founders who are going to keep their eyes on the prize. There are a lot of different things that have to happen to make a company successful, but at the end of the day, what I hear you saying is you want somebody who's going to keep their eyes on that horizon and remember where they're headed, even if the path they are taking there isn't the one they set out to walk. Precisely. And just really
1: focusing on the long-term value of this you know, ultimate moonshot vision for the aging field, which is having interventions that affect aging and humans that have been rigorously proven to do so. I think Kristen nails that. She is laser focused on that. She wants it clearly very, very bad and is willing to be super smart about taking the right paths in order to make that happen.
0: Kristen would love this. I mean, maybe you should cut us a check. <laughs> I think we're a little late for that, but it sounds like you're going to be more of an early stage investor.
1: Yes. So we are focused on pre-seed and seed. Yeah, we're looking for the next Kristens, in essence, who are in the kind of the earliest stages of Either idea, going through the idea maze, thinking about what they could potentially found. We really look interested in just meeting people, potential people who
0: are interested in in making a difference in the space in the form of entrepreneurship. Have you made any investments so far? And can you maybe tell us about that in the context of the principles we've been talking about in the interview?
1: Most certainly can. So we made our first investment earlier this year into a company that's called Aperture Therapeutics. So this is a founder, uh, Martin Yatsko, who is definitely fully embodies the founder archetype that I was describing in terms of will run through walls in order to make something happen in the universe that he wants to happen. He's just got a, a remarkable tenacity. And what Aperture is doing is they're working on brain aging and in specific, taking the lens of neuroinflammation. So this is a space that BioAge also has a, a very cool program focusing on brain aging in kind of the same general space, Martin is is looking to, in essence, create therapies for ALS, Parkinson's disease, neurodegeneration that's targeting neuroinflammation, which really is starting to look more and more like a, a root driver of aging potentially
0: in the brain. I want to zoom out and take a longer view and ask you a couple of more general questions. So one is, all right, there are a lot of venture capitalists, especially in the San Francisco area. And- It feels like there's a lot of money coming into longevity biotech from various directions. So the first question as we close that I have for you is, why does the field need age one? What are you going to do that no one else will? Because honestly, Alex, there are easier ways to turn it back. Oh my gosh, there most certainly are. I think for us, why age one needs to exist
1: is really like this ability to convince some of the raw, ambitious talent that they can do things that I think they don't really know that they can do. That they are maybe like a little bit lacking the self-belief or the tools or the resources in order to pull off some of these moonshot projects. I really think that like a part of of why the field really is going to be benefited by age one is just bringing this like ultra ambitious lens as to what could potentially be possible uh, and I think the other reason is is just that the aging field is a very a very specialized science. It's still the very much so the early days of of how far along the biology of aging has advanced. That's a space with a lot of noise, frankly. the signal to noise ratio is uh, it, it's challenging for a lot of investors into the field. It's very hard to understand what they can trust and what you can't trust in the aging field, even from seemingly professors with very great reputations at top universities. And and so it's it's just a challenging space to diligence and truly understand what's legitimate from a scientific perspective and what's possible and, and what is more kind of off base. Some sort of like mix of these qualities is the magic special sauce of how age one, I think, will be able to dramatically impact the aging field. This ability to identify extremely high potential talent at early stages, kind of give them an Added layer of support to be able to build in a, a tough field to build in, which is biotech, and kind of really instill with more ambition. And then, you know, lastly, just really taking this very specialized, hyper rigorous approach of being rock solid on the science. I think this is something that still is a huge gap in the aging field. Now we're actually the only fund in the in the space that's managed by somebody who has a PhD studying the biology of aging, which I think just kind of speaks to the fact that there hasn't been as much of the investors in this space
0: that have been driven by more of the biology of aging lens. Jen, just to be crystal clear, that PhD is you. You are the PhD (laughs) who will be co-managing this fund, right? That would be me. Okay, fantastic. So thank you. That was a great answer. And something that you said that really resonated with me is just the power of showing people that people like them can do a thing. Like many times in my own life, I felt doubt that I could do something until I met somebody who was more or less like me, who was already doing it. So I think there are a lot of talented people who think I couldn't possibly be a founder for all of the reasons that you cited above, be it just like they lack background, they lack a little bit of support, or mostly they just lack the knowledge that this is possible for someone in their circumstances. And I think that does sound like a very special feature of age one to emphasize that and focus on people who are maybe not already in the mix, but you want to bring them in and you encourage them and you provide them with the resources and support to do that. And, you know, potentially find another revolutionary, find another Laura Deming, find another Kristen Fortney and really change the world, which brings me to my final question, which is how do you want to change the world? What's your ultimate goal? Tell me about the field you want to create. Tell me about the world that you want to create in 10, 20 years.
1: Just to close the thought on your your last point there, I think you're absolutely right in that like people see Kristen and they're like, wow, this like absolutely insanely remarkably talented individual who's built such a successful entity so far. And just like everybody, you know, there's so much respect and admiration. And then I think people almost like start to lose the the fact that like Kristen is a human, as you can attest, like she's human just like the rest of us. I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> And, you know, like, like Kristen, just like every founder, she learned a lot over time, you know, she had a lot of raw potential, but just like every other founder, it wasn't like she had, you know, the entire vision, the entire success that she's achieved now from the beginning. And so I think it can be a little intimidating for founders when they, you know, have followed somebody like Kristen to to imagine themselves as them. And I think the more that we can do to paint the picture of you are just like Kristen was back when she was starting out and thinking about forming BioAge. I think that can be really beneficial for people to help
0: realize that. It's a powerful premise, right? That great founders are actually not born that way. <laughs> and that, you know, the, the person who they are at the founding of a company, you know, BioAge founded in 2015, like now it's 2023, nearly eight years later. And there's been a lot of learning there, certainly on the part of my CEO and, necessarily on the part of any CEO who's really going to make something happen. And so I appreciate that. But again, I want to return to this big picture idea. What is it that you want to do in the world? What is the ultimate goal of age one?
1: Our ultimate goal is to give people agency over how long they live in good health. For me, this is like, and and really for us at age one, this is our driving goalpost. And we will not cease until we finally make a big dent on that final goal. And it's a lofty one. It's not something that is going to be fully achieved in a five-year, 10-year window. It might take us 40, 50 years to really make super dramatic impacts towards and, and super dramatic progress towards this goal, which is really like we want people to have the optionality over how long they live in good health. And I think right now, that's one of the core drivers for us internally at the fund is just frustration over the fact that that's not the way the world exists right now. It is one of the most devastating things to have to witness a loved one, a family member, a friend, a colleague go through this loss of agency over the health that they have due to aging. Just that like this as a system is not working and For us, we're just ultra motivated by this potential future where we could give people that optionality. So not being prescriptive, not saying everybody, you know, needs to take interventions to do this if they don't want to, but really like getting us to the future where like there's a better way, there's an alternative, like you have things that you can do to in essence unlock these periods of like longer time in good health. And that
0: is the magical future that I will not stop until
1: we kind of can
0: fully tackle. I'm certainly, and I think all of us at BioAge are certainly wishing you the best with that. I think that's a great place to stop for now. Alex Colville, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much, Chris. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at on Twitter at BioAgePodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.